uh, tremendously. So uh, we'll continue on tonight. Excited to share with you about the book of James. Uh, As a young boy and a teenager, um, I loved reading the book of James. I think many young Christians, new Christians, uh, uh, enjoy going here. Uh, maybe a little more than some of the other places in the Bible, but whether you're a newborn babe in Christ or you've been saved a good long time, the book of James has got plenty to offer to encourage us. So let's stand and we'll read verse 1 down through verse 4 to get us started tonight. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Let's look at uh, this topic, Bible study, a practical approach to Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight to understand the Bible. And Lord, take many things away from it that we can practically begin applying immediately to help us be, Lord, the Christians that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, to offer a little background here, uh, it has been debated for a long time whether this uh, person's uh, name should have been translated James or Jacob. If you go back and you look at the Greek name of the author of this book, uh, it is more commonly translated Jacob than James. Uh, I don't know that it matters, but um, many, many people uh, believe, in fact, the general consensus is that the person who wrote this book was the half-brother of Jesus and walked the earth, uh, uh, grew up with Jesus, grew up around Jesus, knew a lot about him, rejected him early on, and then later would come to accept him and then uh, would go on and uh, be a strong follower of his of his half brother. Now, uh, they all, the uh, those who really know their Bible history, and, and uh, again, the general consensus, uh, consensus there's not really any arguing over this. But if you read some in the Book of Acts, what you find is that this person, uh, James, Jacob, James, he was the pastor of the Jerusalem church after all of the persecution began, and Peter and all of them left the leadership. The half-brother of Jesus stepped in and took over the church and would stay there until he was brutally martyred for his faith. If you read the book, what you find is that it reads much like the book of Proverbs. It seems to jump from one thought to another and uh, be scattered a little bit. Kind of like when you read Proverbs, right? Uh, Proverbs, you'll be on one idea in one verse and on a total idea on the next verse. That's what you find in, in Proverbs. And uh, in, in Proverbs, you do find some places where you have four or five verses, uh, or even eight or nine verses, or even occasionally a chapter where a thought flows all the way through. But in a lot of Proverbs, it kind of jumps from one idea to the other. And you get that here in the book of James, where it seems to jump from one place to the other. However, in my studying this week, I found there to be really only five different topics that James addresses And all five of those topics are found in chapter 1, and then you find them addressed again in various places throughout the book. The other interesting thing about the book of James is it's clear that Jesus had a whole lot of influence on James because he seems to reference a whole lot the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you find a lot of... Uh, you find a lot of things in common with the Sermon on the Mount given almost in a Proverbs format here in the book of James. So 
Um, the, the first chapter sort of reads as a table of contents to the rest of the book. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin in chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, the first few verses and we're going to take the topic that's addressed throughout the book and then see that thread run through the rest of the, the book, the other, five, the other four chapters. There's five total. So we'll look at uh, a set of verses to begin the chapter, and then we'll look at the thread that runs throughout the book on that topic, and we're going to do that five different times and see the five topics that James addresses throughout the book. And uh, we will end up reading the entire book uh, as we go, uh, as we do it through this process. So that's a little bit of the history of the book. Uh, uh, if you know much about the Church of Jerusalem, boy, they were a persecuted church. They were a persecuted church. And James really had to help them uh, through that. Even while James remained their pastor, there was a heavy heavy, heavy persecution that remained on them from the chief uh, uh, priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they hammered them. We know about Paul throwing many of them in prison, and Paul would go throughout and try to raise an offering to come back as sort of a peace offering and say, I know I killed some of your family or my imprisonment of your family led to their deaths, but I, I want to give you this peace offering. So you find Peter, or rather Paul, referencing the Jerusalem church over and over again, but James was its main pastor uh, after uh, uh, Peter and the other apostles left town. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in tonight, and we're going to try to get through at least the first three this evening, hopefully, and then we'll get to the, uh, whatever we don't get to tonight, we'll get to uh, on next Wednesday. All right, uh, number one there, notice our wholeness, our wholeness. Now, uh, go back to James chapter one, look at verse number two, and notice there it says, my brethren counted all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations or various or many different temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work. Note that word perfect, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So the first theme here is our wholeness. Now, the word perfect in the book of James is found seven times, seven times. That's the number of completion, isn't it? That's God's number of perfection. The number of perfection is seven in the Bible. The word perfect is found exactly seven times in the book. And where you find the word perfect in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, in both cases, it translates down to our English word, to be made whole. To be made whole, or wholeness. And so uh, the idea here is that we're being sanctified, little at a time, little at a time. We've talked about sanctification Many times we've talked about how that it is a beautiful sounding theory, right? That I'm an ugly pig pen sinner rolling around in the squalor of sin and the mud hole of sin. And then I get yanked out of that and saved. And for the rest of my life, God is working to clean me up and make me better. And that's a beautiful sounding thing, isn't it? That I'd go from being a dirty, rotten, no good, hell-bent, uh, hell-deserving sinner. And then I would be made into the image of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a thought. Uh, and and we love that. But when you get down into the nitty-gritty details of being made whole, being made perfect, it is a hard, hard process because God has got to break down our stubborn will. And He's got to show us that, no, uh, you, you, you need to do it the right way. So notice letter A, a perspective on perfection. A perspective on perfection. It is not God's goal for you to be perfect while walking the earth in the sense of being without sin. 
Okay, I, I sat, uh, Angel and I sat in the living room of a young lady who visited this past Sunday, and um, and uh, we witnessed to her. And after we got all through the gospel, uh, she was able to give us a salvation testimony. And she said, you know, I just don't feel saved anymore because my my religion has just felt manufactured for a long time. And, and I've been going to church, but I just don't really feel saved inside. And what it, what it came down to for this young lady is that um, uh, she had just gotten away from the Lord and she wasn't doing the works of the Lord for the right reasons. We've all been there, right? We're doing the works of God, but more out of obligation or out of habit, but not because you're supposed to be doing it. And I guess she felt as though the rest of her life maybe didn't line up uh, quite that way. And she said, I just don't know how God can keep forgiving me over and over and over again. And I can totally relate with that. I, I can relate with confessing the same sin several times in the same day. And saying, God, you're probably sick of me coming to you and saying I'm sorry for this, but he just doesn't get sick of it. God understands that we're bent towards sin. We have a conscience that uh, will never be taken away from us while we walk this earth that leans towards sin. And no matter how close to the Lord we get, there's always still that pull, that magnetic pull back towards sin. And so uh, 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 James 1 and a, a, a James 1, as, as well as other passages, sort of shows us how it is that God heals us or makes us whole, the process that he puts us through, and how that it is, isn't always pretty. Notice, uh, look down it with me at verse number 12. In verse 2, 3, and 4, we, it, we see the Bible talking about the trying of our faith. Okay, Look it down at verse number 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried... He shall receive the crown of life when the Lord hath promised uh, promised to them uh, that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man when he is tempted, uh, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning, of whom uh, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, it's interesting that on the back end of God talking about us being tempted, James goes right to us being the first fruits in Christ. What is he saying here? He's saying that God uses two methods to make us uh, whole. The first one God uses is trials. The second one God uses is temptation. God uses trials and he uses temptations. Now, they're not the same thing. They're two different things, but God wants both of them to work the same outcome. When a God sends a trial in your life, he is doing that to prove your faith. He's doing it to prove your faith. What does a trial do? God is testing your faith. God was not uh, tempting Abraham in the sense of trying to get him to sin when he had Abraham take Isaac up on the mount to sacrifice him. Instead, he was trying Abraham's faith. He was saying, okay, Abraham, you say that you have faith. Let me give you something extremely hard to do, and let's see how that faith holds up. That is a trial. God sends trials our way to test our faith. 
And by the way, one, one way of knowing whether or not you are a Christian and a growing Christian is, is God regularly testing your faith? Is He regularly doing things where your faith is being tested? I've shared this with the church before. I'm not going to elaborate or, or, uh, or, or go into it, but just I'm going to hit this and move on. When we first got married, God was testing Pastor Lejeune's financial faith. Are you going to trust me with your money? And he needed to do that, and I learned that lesson very early on in my marriage. My wife and I learned that together. Right now, over the last four years, God has been working on another type of faith. He's trying to work on my people faith. Richard, are you going to trust me with your relationships? You can't manipulate every outcome. You can't get everybody to like you and love you and agree with you and want to do things your way. Uh, there are going to be people along life's path, you're going to have to turn over to me and let me work on them. And you're going to have to walk by faith when it comes to certain aspects of certain relationships. And you're just going to have to walk by faith totally with different types of people. Do you know that God may come along and test your health faith? Your health faith. He may take your health away and say, okay, do you trust the doctors at Yale or do you trust me? Nothing wrong with going to the doctors at Yale, but... Is your faith in them or is it in me? And there are all kinds of different categories of faith of the Christian. And God is going to run you through trial after trial after trial. Why? Because He is trying to grow your faith. He's trying to perfect you. God directly uses trials and indirectly He uses temptation. Now the Bible tells us here in James 1 that God does not tempt man. And those of you that know your Bible really well say, well, 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 the Bible says that God tempted Abraham. And again, you go back and you look at the root word and you understand that that word tempt there is not the same root word as this one. Uh, the root word here for tempt means to try to get someone to do wrong. You're just trying to get someone to sin. And God does indirectly use this. You say, well, what do you mean by indirectly? Do you remember Job? God did not tempt Job, but he gave permission to Satan to tempt Job. Right? And God is never going to tempt you, but he does allow Satan to tempt us, and he does allow our own sin nature to tempt us. I am a big believer that Satan does not know very many Christians' names. People uh, like to say, the devil made me do it. Who's the old uh, comedian that used Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it. You know, I don't think devil, the devil, he's not omnipresent. He doesn't know everything. He's not everywhere at one time. I don't think Satan even knows most Christians' names. Satan doesn't have to worry about most Christians because they just keep giving in to their own flesh. And if you're going to keep falling prey to your own flesh, then why is Satan going to worry himself with knowing who you are trying to go after you? You say, well, who does Satan go after? Satan goes after the people who learn uh, to, to grow in the Lord and be disciplined enough to not give in to their flesh on a regular basis. And when they start making a dent in the kingdom of darkness, Satan stands up and takes note. And then he turns his wiles, his fiery darts of that that Christian and begins to go at him. And that's a whole other level of, uh, of temptation. But everybody here, whether it's temptation of your flesh or satanic temptation, we all deal with it. And God wants to use that temptation... He wants you to endure that temptation. Why? So that you can be His first fruits. You can be made whole. You can be perfected in the Lord. Perfected in the Lord. So we see a perspective on perfection. And then letter B, we see the process of perfection. We see this theme show up again in chapter number 4. 
Let's turn over to chapter number 4 and verse number 1. James gets preached out a lot. Uh, James gets preached out of a lot because there's a lot of short one-liners that are rememberable. Uh, there are memorable. There are a lot of verses in here that are easy to memorize and are power-packed, like the book of Proverbs. It gets preached out of a lot, so you're probably familiar with a good chunk of the book. But let's look at chapter four, one through ten, with the scope of God wanting to perfect those, make whole those, sanctify those whom He has saved. Look at chapter four, verse one. From whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not hence even of your lusts, that war in your members, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts, ye adulterers and adulteresses, this is speaking spiritually here, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? What does verse 5 say? Verse 5 is the transition verse here. Okay, verse 1 through 4 talks about a Christian who has shut out the Holy Spirit and is tuned in to the lusts of his flesh. Right? James talks about, we'll look at it a little bit later, uh, either this week or next week, but James talks about having your evil conscience pricked. I heard, I, I don't remember who it was, I think it was someone around here, it may even be one of you, but I heard someone say recently that we have two consciences. We have an evil conscience and we have a spiritual conscience. And I thought, is that spirit? Is that, is that in the Bible? And I was studying for this message and I said, there it is! It's in the Bible! We'll look at it in a little bit, but your evil conscience. That is, that is the tainted sinful nature inside of you that tempts you to do wrong. Now, we all face choices every week. All face choices every day. In fact, we face choices moment by moment. I have it in my sermon notes somewhere in a sermon I preached a long time ago, but how many different decisions a human being makes on average a day? It's in the tens of thousands of decisions that we make every day. All right, And every one of those decisions you're either going to make by the, the desire of your flesh, the lust of your flesh, or the spirit. Now, the Bible says there that the spirit lusteth to envy. What does that mean? That means that the Holy Spirit is jealous of you. The Holy Spirit is jealous when you choose sin over righteousness. And so verses 1 through 4 describe a Christian who is wayward from the Lord. By the way, those that believe in losing your salvation or works-based salvation, let me just say this before we go any further in the book. James was written not to the lost about how to get saved. James is written to those that were already saved. The book of James here is written to Christians. This is James's teachings and preachings to the church of Jerusalem and abroad here. And so, ye adulterers and adulteresses, notice the relationship, pay attention here, Verse 4, notice the relationship with God has not been broken, it's just been damaged. If sinning caused you to lose your salvation, then God would have divorced those who were adulterers and adulteresses. But that's not what he does. In fact, verses 6 through 10, he provides a path back to marital wholeness in Christ or marital perfection in Christ. What is the process of sanctification? Well, uh, well, first of all, uh, it is 
first that you recognize that you're living your life by the flesh. You're living your life by the flesh. Now, I know that I'm speaking to somebody in here tonight. I don't know who, but somebody in here tonight, statistically speaking, you've been making decisions not by the Spirit of the Lord. You've been making decisions by the desires of your flesh. Your body has a craving and you give in. Your body wants to do something that doesn't please the Lord and you give in and you watch this or you listen to that or you wear this or you go there or you speak to this person or you're involved in uh, this activity or the other. Or maybe it isn't a sin of commission, it's a sin of omission where you know God wants you to hand someone a gospel tract, but you refuse to do it. Or you know you're supposed to go over the in the auditorium and talk to the person over there that you don't know and make them feel welcomed and loved, but you don't do it. And whatever it is, you you are walking by the the flesh and you're not walking by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is inside of you and He is envious. He's filled with rage and jealousy because He wants you to do what's right. So what is the process? Well, look at verse number, uh, ver- look at verse number 6. It says, But He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Step 1, humble your heart. Humble your heart. Step two. What's the process here? Step two. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You can't submit to someone until you bring about a spirit of humility. Ephesians 5, 21 says, Submit yourselves one another in fear of God. Right? And uh, that's to married couples. Let me just tell you something here. Um, When my wife and I aren't getting along, which doesn't happen very often, but does happen occasionally, my, my wife and I aren't getting along. Do you know that it's because we both are bringing a spirit of pride? And one of the two of us has to come back and humble our heart and submit to the other before it can be fixed. That's not just in marriage. That's any relationship. Right? You bump heads with me. One of the two of us, if not both of us, have to humble our heart and submit one to the other. And by the way, a relationship really cannot be reconciled until both parties humble their heart. Right? That's how that works. Both parties have to be humble and and willing to help the other one along in order for that to happen. The second step here is that you've got to submit. You humble and then you submit. Look here. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then you turn around and resist the devil. Here's where a lot of Christians get caught up. They come to church. They hear a sermon preached. God works in their heart. They know they've got to change. They humble their heart in the service. They come even may even come down to the front or in their pew. They make a decision and they submit. But then they walk out those doors and they don't resist the devil. Now, when they were here, they meant their decision. But when they get out there, they lay down and let Satan run them over. How many of you here are willing to say, Pastor, that has happened to me where I made a decision at church and then I got home and realized that the decision didn't stick? Has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me. It happened to me many times. And I've, I've been discouraged over that. Like, well, why am I going forward in church? Why am I even going to get, go down there and pray? I'm going to walk out and mess up. Right? I've been there. i felt that way. But you not only have to submit, you have to turn around and resist the devil. Sunday evening, we talked about in order to overcome those small circle sins, little circle sins, that you've got to make lifestyle changes. You know what resisting the devil is? It's making lifestyle changes. It's saying radical overhauls are going to be made in my life. 
uh, where I go, when I go, how much I sleep, when I sleep, my diet and eating habits, uh, 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 what I'm involved with online, right? All of these things are either contributing to you walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. All of these are either contributing to you being submitted to the Lord or, or submitted to Satan. You're either submitting to Satan and resisting the Lord or you're submitting to the Lord and you're resisting to Satan. So, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, the Bible says, and he will flee from you. And you can see Matthew 4 as to how that works, where Jesus resisted the devil and he fleed from him. Then look at verse 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, that's the outward. Ye sinners, and purify your hearts, that's the inward. Ye double-minded, be uh, afflicted and mourn and weep. Don't miss verse 9. This is a big part of the process. Be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. I think one of the big problems why we don't ever overcome our sin and and get to a place of, of growth and sanctification is we don't really seriously understand how horrible sin is. And we don't understand how much God hates it. And we don't understand how much it hurts God and the Holy Spirit inside of us when we commit it. Here's a question for you. I want you to answer inside of your heart. Have you ever wept over your own sin? Or is your repentance time more like, yeah, I messed up, forgive me, and you just move on? God hates our sin. He's heartbroken over it. And I'm not saying that you've got to weep a puddle of tears every time you make a mistake. But boy, if you have a habit sin in your life that you can't kick, it ought to drive you to a place of deep mourning. You say, well, pastor, where in the Bible is that? Read Psalms 51, where David confessed his sin of messing up with Bathsheba. Another quick note here is that David waited until he had been confronted over his sin and his child's life was in danger before he really mourned. And what I find a lot of times in my life, what I have found a lot of times in my life, what I have found in a lot of times in counseling people, is most folks aren't really mournful over their sin until they're about to lose something. Or something's in danger. Hey, don't let it get there for you. You have a sin in your life? Mourn. Weep. Let God see that you're sincere. Hey, miss some meals over it. Show God you're serious about changing. Um, All part of the process of sanctification, being made whole. And then verse 10 finishes off the thought with the way it began. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Here's a neat little uh, quote you can write down. Be humble or be humbled, you choose. Be humble or be humbled, you choose. You can either choose humility yourself or God will. He'll humble you. And his way of humbling hurts. So I recommend you do it on your own. Right? Um, here's something else I've learned, is there are levels of humility. And I, I have at times in my life felt as though I was walking free from habitual sin, walking with the Lord, reading my Bible and praying, and my relationship with Him was sweet. And I felt that I was living a life that was in honor, preferring uh, others, uh, not because... Um, not because I was forcing myself to, just I had grown to a place in my walk with God where I had gotten there. 
And I wish I could tell you that I'm there all the time, but it's a battle to get there and stay there. It just is. There have been times where I was there and God would, God would bring circumstances in my life and he would humble me even more. Because to the degree that we are humbled, to that same degree he can lift us up for his work. And if we lift ourselves up, he's going to put us down. And if we put ourselves down, he's going to lift us up to be used. Right? How about Peter? You remember Peter? I think Peter is maybe the greatest example of this in Scripture. Peter wept bitterly because he denied Christ three times. And then, even after the, the Savior had resurrected and he saw him, he said, I go a fishing and he quit. He was so humiliated over his own sin. And because he became so humble, God was able to lift him up to preach at Pentecost and see all those people saved. So be humble or be humbled. You get to choose. The process of perfection. And listen, I'm hitting this quickly. All right. Number two, notice our wisdom. Our wisdom. Go back to chapter one. Again, chapter one is a table of contents to the rest of the book. And all of the topics dealt with in the book are referenced quickly in chapter one. Look at verse number five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let, uh, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So I never understood the connection between verse 8 and verse 5 uh, like I do now until I studied uh, for this message here. But the idea here he's getting at is, listen, you don't come with godly wisdom in, uh, naturally inside of you. You come with your own wisdom, and your own wisdom is flawed, it's, it's broken, it, it's wrong. Well, let's just stop and ask this. Where do we get our own earthly wisdom from? Are we born with it? Not really, right? When we're born, we're kind of a blank piece of paper. And uh, our wisdom comes from life experiences. Life experiences. And it is natural for us to lean on that. In fact, Christians do it all the time. Now, the more you read your Bible and pray and walk with the Lord, the more God's wisdom begins to integrate into your thinking and mindsets. And, and you can lean on that wisdom because it comes from Bible and God and those things. But if you did not grow up with the Bible in your hand and in, in the Word of God in your heart, or even if you did, but you kind of learn some things that were through life circumstances that don't line up with Scripture, it's really easy to start leaning on that. It's really easy to start relying on that. And when we do that, that makes that is a huge mistake. Let me give you an A to B here. Notice wisdom's imposter. Wisdom's imposter. That word imposter means uh, uh, someone uh, who cloaks himself to be something he isn't. Someone who cloaks himself to be something he isn't. Someone or something that cloaks himself to be something that he or it isn't. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Look here, it says, and by the way, verse 13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge? We'll look at this more in a minute. But the idea, the topic here is on wisdom. Okay, you get that in verse 13. The thought builds in verse 14. But if ye have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts... Glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. 
For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. So this wisdom is an imposter. This earthly wisdom, uh, this sensual wisdom, this devilish wisdom. What, how, so what is the test? What is the test of whether or not you have God's wisdom or not? If the wisdom you have tells you to get back at people, get even, I don't get mad, I get even. Okay? I look at, in practical jokes, I get it, that's all fine and well. But if you, if you have it in your heart, hey, someone embarrassed me, and I'm gonna embarrass them back. That person stole from me, I'm gonna steal back. That person lied to me, boy, I'm gonna be deceitful and get them back. That person embarrassed me, watch what I do with them on social media. I'm gonna embarrass them to death. That's your spirit, that's your attitude, that wisdom doesn't come from above. That, that's an earthly wisdom. That's a sensual wisdom. That's a devilish wisdom. And, and listen, we've got to be careful about this. Wisdom comes from above. It comes from God. And it isn't natural. It isn't natural. None of us are born and none of us gain God's wisdom. That It's His and He gives out. I've often illustrated it like a loaf of bread. And every day we go to God and we say, Lord, can you give me your wisdom for today? And God looks at our schedule ahead and he sees uh, how much of his wisdom we're going to need for the day. And he gives us just enough to get us through that day. And then the next morning we need to wake up and say, Lord, I need your wisdom for today. And we get down on our knees and we beg for it. And he gives us just enough to get through that day. If I ever counsel you or you come in my office to ask my advice, oftentimes, if not every time, before we start, I will pray a prayer like this. I'll say, Lord, give me your wisdom. Give me your words to help this person. I don't want my wisdom. I want your wisdom. Speak through me to that person. And listen, you ought to approach uh, people that come to you to adv- for advice that way. Sunday school teachers, you ought to pray that way in the morning time, before your class ever starts. If you're ever going to stand up and preach in a junior church or on a bus route, boy, you ought to pray that way, Lord. You speak through me with your wisdom. But hey, if you're going out to buy a car, you ought to pray that way. If you're going to make any decision in life, pray that prayer. Lord, give me your wisdom to make this decision. Wisdom's imposter, letter B. We see wisdom's identity. Wisdom's identity. Now, the Bible talked about in, uh, in um, uh, James 1, verse 8, a double-minded man being unstable in all his ways. What is that? That is someone who's trying to walk by God's wisdom part of the time and their own wisdom the rest of the time. And you become a scriptural schizophrenic. That's what you become. Because part of the time, man, you're on track for God. And boy, you're doing the work of God. And you're walking with God. And you're all about it. And then the next week, you're inconsistent. And then you're doing things by your own flesh. And you're making a mess of things. And you get off track. You're like, oh man, i, I got to get this right. And so you go to the Lord and pray. You say, Lord, help me get back on track. Give me your wisdom. And man, you're back on track. And then the next week, you're back over here. And you flip-flop. And you're double-minded. And that just causes all kinds of instability. Wisdom's identity. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man and do with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good lifestyle or a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. What does that word meekness mean? Meekness is one of the most misunderstood words in Scripture. Meekness, this is really good. All right, if you're taking notes, I recommend you write this down. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. 
control. Meekness is not weakness. The Bible talks about women being of a meek and quiet spirit. Ladies, that doesn't mean that you get to lay down and let men run you over. That's not what it means. Meekness means that you have power under control. When someone comes in and they're bullish and throwing their weight around and uh, they're, they're, they're hot-tempered, you are power under control. Meekness with wisdom. Who is a wise man? And endued with knowledge. The knowledge of God among you. Uh, this verse implies that a wise man not only knows the right things to say, uh, the, the wise man also knows the right way to behave. Not only has the, the advice down from a philosophical standpoint, has the lifestyle down through a spirit of God speaking through them. Wisdom, spiritual wisdom is not just conveyed in words. Spiritual wisdom is conveyed in action. That's why his works, his lifestyle, uh, his works with meekness of wisdom. Uh, the thought continues in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first Pure, than peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Hey, it's, it's accessible. It's like a well. People can come and dip from it whenever they want. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Wow, what a high bar is set here. But who, uh, those who have God's wisdom, they've gone to Him over and over and over again and asked God for it. And then not only is it displayed in their words, it's displayed in their behavior. They're gentle. They're peaceable. Uh, they're accessible. They're full of mercy and good fruits. Uh, uh, they don't show partiality. Uh, they don't go, oh, there's that person. I'm going over here. Or, you know what? Uh, yeah, I'll meet with you uh, uh, the second Tuesday of next week. Alright? They're just as available for the person who might be socially abnormal as they are for the person who is, boy, easy to get along with. They're impartial. Wisdom's identity. And then verse 18 says, And the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace of them that make peace. The fruit of righteousness is part of a, 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 a man or woman who uh, has God's wisdom living through them. So our wholeness, our wisdom... And um, uh, we'll stop it there. We'll jump into number three next week and uh, finish out the outline here. Uh, but uh, are you allowing the sanctification process of God to work in you and through you? I hope so. Are you allowing God's wisdom to infiltrate your life and change you? Or are you leaning on your own wisdom? So just some thoughts there. We'll jump in and look at uh, the last three parts. I'd encourage you to study James 1 and see if you can't fill out the blanks on your own. Okay, let's stand to be dismissed for prayer. Hope the Bible study was a challenge to you tonight. Be safe this week as you travel about, especially Friday.